Alright. 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 Welcome to the OysterCast, a weekly podcast about the intersection of creativity and technology. I'm Ron Cowie. And I'm Alex Boudelier, and together we are Oyster Farm Productions, a Rhode Island-based video production company. And we get together every week to talk about creativity and what makes us tick and, and how we go about production and all the little details that go into it. That's right. And this week we're getting to talk with Tammy Brown, the brand spanking new artistic director for the Contemporary Theater Company. Alex tells us a little bit about his hike in the woods up in New Hampshire and some of the video and audio stuff that he was doing up there and a book he's reading by Chase Jarvis. And then we talk about this, that, and the other. You're just going to have to listen. Please subscribe to our podcast on whatever platform you listen to. There we go. All right. First up is an interview with Tammy Brown, the artistic director for the Contemporary Theater Company. I don't know that much about you, honestly. And so where were you born? I was born in Providence, Rhode Island. All right. All right. I'm a hometown gal. So you are a Rhode Islander. Yep, through okay. and through. Well, that's cool. That's cool. And you went to school in Providence, I assume? Yes. Yep. I went all the way. I was a Providence public school kid, literally beginning to end from Head Start through Rhode Island College. Okay. All right. And what did you study? When did you, when did you start kind of gravitating towards theater and the stage? Or was that something that you can't really point a finger at it. When I was in middle school, I was lucky enough to go to a school that had a really good performing arts program mm-hmm. just as part of the electives, like in-school electives. One of them you could pick performing arts. Mm-hmm. And then that program also had like an after-school program. It was mostly dance mm-hmm. when I went there, but I was lucky enough that I went to a school that had that. So there was like, oddly enough, kind of a mistake on my school schedule when I started middle school and uh, they messed up everybody's electives. I had to change mine and I just picked what everybody else around me picked. I happened to be near a bunch of girls and they all picked performing arts. And so I picked that even though I was really shy and it wouldn't have been my first choice had I picked it on my own. What was your first choice? For the elective was probably typing. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe I should have taken that um, because I'm not a very fast typist. But yeah, I would have probably taken typing or home ec or something like that. But I ended up taking performing arts and it was great. I really found my voice. I found my home. I I instantly fell in love with it. Mm -hmm. Isn't that funny? Yeah. Yeah, I was very, very shy growing up I'm still an introverted person but I was very very shy growing up so I never would have thought I could go on stage and all that stuff yeah so you you went into you found your your call I mean I don't want to call it a calling but it was just something as a girl wow this is this is amazing I love it and though so through high school do you think this is something I can make my life with or is it just when I was in middle school Over the three years I was in middle school, I fell in love with the performing arts program. Mm -hmm. I loved learning about it. I was very lucky. Again, there's a lot of luck because I didn't have the opportunity to take any classes, you know, outside of school or go Mm -hmm. to any theater camps or anything. We were pretty poor Mm -hmm. growing up. 
I happened to have a program in school that was free that I could go to, but also my theater teacher was very demanding. Her name was Mrs. Berger, and she was very, very demanding. Like she ran it like a Broadway training academy or something like that. You had to have everything perfect, everything just... So she instilled a lot of discipline and a lot of respect for Mm -hmm. the theater. Like it, it took years and years before I could bring myself to wear jeans inside of a theater because she instilled in us that you do not wear jeans to the theater. You dress up, you dress in your best attire always to go to the theater. So that was just one example. But so I I left middle school with that, like sort of respect for it and the kind of discipline Mm -hmm. that you need to kind of pursue it and like just a love of the art form. But then when I got to high school, I was still really shy. So I, it took me like two years to build up the nerve to go out for the school play. And I, I took like the the theater elective in school when I was able to as a sophomore. And then mm-hmm. when I was like a junior, I did the school play mm-hmm. <laughs> finally. Yeah. Um, and then I did it for the rest of high school. Hmm. And what was it? What was this first school play that you were in? I was in our town. Oh yeah. <laughs> so, and I had like one line or something like that. Mm-hmm. And it was great. It was, it was so fun. And I have a special spot in my heart for for the play Our Town. (laughs) Okay. All right. That's good. So you went off to Rhode Island College and did you pursue a major in theater? I resisted it at Mm -hmm. every turn. So it took me until senior year to start to think that theater was maybe something I could pursue. I was... In the, in the school musical in a senior year, mm-hmm. I got a ton of really great feedback from it, and it really gave me a lot of confidence. And I thought, okay, well, I like this, and it seems like I also might be good at it, so mm-hmm. that's cool. But I resisted actually majoring in theater until like I had to declare a major mm. after like in sophomore year. And I, I declared psychology. Mm. And then I just realized over the course of time that like I couldn't I couldn't avoid it. It was yeah. it was it was the thing I really wanted to do. So then I ended up doing a double major in psychology and theater. And it was really easy to do mm-hmm. at Rick because with the theater performance, you, part of it, like a big part of the major was a bunch of credits that could go under a lot of different disciplines. Mm-hmm. Like you had a choice of a bunch of different disciplines and it just said, take X amount of credits from any one of these disciplines. And one of them was psychology. So like most of my psychology classes counted. Mm-hmm. So I just, I went with that. After you graduate, I don't know, when, when did you graduate? 2006. Okay, 2006. So you graduated and... It's not like there is this theater industry in the state of Rhode Island. Mm-hmm. So it's like you just, you're, you're working, you're doing whatever postgraduate, mm-hmm. you know, you're paying the bills. But what were the early days of after you're out of school and you love this and there isn't the structure, like we're kind of getting into a little bit of the process. You yeah, know, moving, totally. Moving towards it. Like you, you kind of had to make your own luck or you, you had to make your own career. Yeah. What did that look like? Well, I always found, for me, you know, I'm a a working class person. I grew up pretty poor. Mm -hmm. And so every time I had to do a play, and I think this even goes until my most recent play, to Hamlet, I had to kind of take a financial hit 
mm-hmm. to do it. Like I had to take time off of work or when I became a sort of freelance performer, I had to not accept other like better paying work so that I could do a theater role. And so I was never able to do quite as much theater as I wanted to, even in college. And then after college, I, you know, I was maybe able to do one or two plays a year because, you know, just trying to make it work with my work schedule. Mm hmm because I was working in, like I worked, actually when I first graduated from college, I worked in a group home for developmentally and physically disabled adults. Mm-hmm. And so it it was always a, a balance. And, and I always felt pulled toward theater, but it's mm-hmm. like you kind of have to have like a nine to five yeah. job and then nights free in mm-hmm. order to be able to do that. And it was just hard to do. Do you think that makes you better? Not not like status, but just like that that somehow that kind of... I don't want to say grist or that grit, like, or is that just kind of um, nonsense that if you, if you could go back and someone would say, Tammy, look, you just be, you do theater and bills are paid. I mean, where do you think that that's even worth considering or thinking about as like, well, where would you be if? Yeah. You know, it's a really good question. I think there's, it's like a double-edged sword in a way because mm-hmm. on the one hand if i could have just done as much theater as i would have wanted regardless of finances i would have gotten a lot more practice it mm-hmm. would have taken me a lot less time to learn the craft mm-hmm. so to speak because i could have done it in like a more condensed amount of time mm-hmm. but i do think if you're going to be a theater artist you need to have grit yeah and even just even just in terms of working on a single play it's hard (laughs) you know you're usually balancing working a day job and then you come to the theater at night and you learn your lines sometime and you're at rehearsal a lot and then you know you might be rehearsing i mean when we did romeo and juliet for example at, at the contemporary theater that was just an outdoor shakespeare play but some of the rehearsals we rehearsed for like five, six, seven hours outside in the August sun, mm-hmm. you know, to do that play. So you have to, you do have to have, I think, a lot of grit to yeah. be able to do that. And I think that's why you see a lot of people who like theater when they're young and then maybe they major in it in college and then they just don't continue much after college because they don't have the grit or they they want it to come a little easier or i know they don't have that that same drive to Mm -hmm. to do it no matter what and i think you know i don't often have the opportunity to advise uh younger uh artists i Mm -hmm. wish i did because i would tell them you know look around you and look sort of look ahead look at like maybe the the next level or age group of artists around you and you know think about how many people are still doing this craft five years after they graduate 10 years after they graduate 15 years after they graduate I graduated college 15 years ago Mm -hmm. you know and I'm still doing theater Mm -hmm. that's so rare I can count on less than one hand the people I graduated college with that have a theater degree that are still doing it now. So, and it, it's because of the grit, I think. 
And do you think you'd be able to draw a straight line from they hand you your diploma to where you are now? I, I, I think the answer is no. No. <laughs> but I just want to hear, like, well, what does the journey kind of look like? It, was there ever a point where you're like, I, yeah, I don't know. I mean, maybe, probably not. Yeah, like the whole time, really. Because, okay. because I think the problem is, and I, I think I've talked about this with some of my theater friends recently, is that, like, when you, first of all, you know, I went to a bachelor's degree, so mm-hmm. I have a bachelor's degree and not a BFA or mm-hmm. Bachelor of Fine Arts. So it wasn't as sort of conservatory based mm-hmm. as like a URI, for example, where they have a Bachelor of Fine Arts. Mm-hmm. But even still, it seems like there's not enough of a balance between teaching students how to be a good artist and also teaching students how to make a life in the arts and teaching students how to make a living in the arts. Mm-hmm. Like those are three kind of distinct things and there's not enough attention given to all three of them. So you're just, as soon you get your degree and that's it, you're on your own. You have to figure out mm-hmm. every single thing by yourself in mm-hmm. terms of how am I going to pursue this? And that's why you see, 22-year-olds or 21-year-olds or whatever, just pick it up and move into New York, and they don't even have a clue what that even means. Mm -hmm. And good for them. Some of them do make it, and that's wonderful. And some of them get discouraged right out of the bat, and then they give it up. And it wouldn't have been great if they could have been coached, Mm -hmm. like how to move to New York and what plans you need to make and how to make connections when you get there and what it's like to live there so they can be prepared and also that New York isn't the only place you can do theater so you know think about what kind of theater you want to do and then go to that place Mm -hmm. you know I think that that would be better and you'd have a lot more people who could in theory you know continue with this art form beyond Mm -hmm. just you know graduating college and then not doing anything with the degree. Absolutely. And that's where you kind of get into this, I don't want to say like an elite club mm. mentality, but it, it, I, it really exists where there's this, oh, you went to Yale mm-hmm. drama school and you, you know, there's this pipeline. I see this in the fine art, in a lot of the fine art degree mm-hmm. things that there's this, this channel, if you will, that if you, I mean, sometimes people pop out and it's just through dumb luck and hard work. But in a lot of cases, you'll see a lot of middling people who are exalted because they're just on the right subway so yeah, to speak. totally and it's you know it can be discouraging i suppose but such is the way of the world so all right you are now the artistic director for the contemporary theater company in wakefield rhode island like, yes you start that full-time now yes that's awesome mm-hmm. that's awesome yeah i'm happy <laughs> yeah what what does that kind of look like now I think we'll find out (laughs) I think I've been thinking about it for Mm -hmm. a while and I've been making small steps towards it but I haven't been working at it full-time just yet Mm -hmm. Um, but you know there's a lot of goals you want to accomplish and there's a lot of things that you're responsible for that I'm going to be responsible for Mm -hmm. with the theater and especially we just came out with our new strategic plan Mm -hmm. and new mission statement and Mm -hmm. a whole equity and diversity and inclusion plan and you know I'm responsible for executing Mm -hmm. that so I have to do that I have to pick all the plays and I have to make sure that they fit within the mission and the EDI plan Mm -hmm. and also that 
the theater doesn't go bankrupt yeah. <laughs> while I'm trying to do that. And, and also make sure that we like nurture our ensemble and mm-hmm. our artistic community so that everybody feels like they're growing and everybody feels involved and excited about the projects that we're doing. And, you know, so it, it's, it's a lot to kind of balance all all together so it'll be interesting <laughs> yeah well it i'm sure it can feel overwhelming at times you know but so and that that is a full plate that how much that sounds a lot like running a business in this it's like it doesn't sound like you're going to be doing a whole lot of acting and there's going to be a lot of managing yeah i mean it's it's interesting because i one of the things i really want to do and i think we do it already to a certain extent, but I want to make sure we're really intentional about it is, you know, looking at the key people who are in on the staff and Mm -hmm. in the ensemble and in the community and that we know sort of what skills everybody's kind of bringing to the table Mm -hmm. and that we utilize them to the best of our ability and so that they feel like their skills are being made to good use, but also that they're not constantly doing the same thing over and over. And I'm going to be obviously administrating, managing, planning. Mm-hmm. So that's part of it. But I also am one of the directors, mm-hmm. one of the core directors at the theater. I have been for a few years. So yeah. that's going to be a thing. And also like I'm one of the core actors in the company. And the last show I did, the last full length show I did was Hamlet. So it's balancing that and even for me personally as an actor that's always been kind of my primary way that I've identified myself as an artist is Mm -hmm. that acting was my primary skill and my primary art form and I've I think I've accomplished what I wanted to do there I I felt kind of fulfilled there Mm -hmm. and I'm excited to move on to other things but at the same time it's something that people want to see. Like the audience honestly likes to see me on stage. And so I think I need to think about that Mm -hmm. when I plan the shows. And I don't, I don't intend to pick a bunch of shows that showcase me. Honestly, Mm -hmm. I'm not super interested in doing that, but at the same time, it would be probably if some other artistic director came in and said, well, that's it. We're not going to cast Tammy in anything ever again. Mm -hmm. That wouldn't make any sense. So why should it make yeah. you know sense if I did that? So yeah. you know, I don't know. It's like a balance. Yeah, absolutely. I think what's interesting and, and kind of what we've been what we've always been leading up to is the sense of you know the muscles that are required in directing. And so you were an actress. Do you think there's a big difference between someone who really doesn't act that much and only directs? And someone who, like you, who has that experience on stage as an actor and then moving into directing. I'm sure there is a difference, but is one better than the other? I don't, I'm not sure if one is really better than the other, but I do think there is a difference and it changes your approach, Mm -hmm. I think, to directing and the way you interact with the actors. And also, for me, what what you prioritize and what you value Mm-hmm. in the in the process and like the rehearsal process and also in the final product of the show well since we don't have a uh, non-acting director here online how do you 
what do you do? Like you, I'm giving you a play. Like talk, talk me through the process of Romeo and Juliet. That's the last one I saw mm-hmm. that you did. I mean, I, I sat through some of Hamlet, but like the last one that you directed and you acted in. Mm-hmm. And for me, like acting is my way in to the process. That's okay. the thing I feel most confident about. That's the thing I know. I feel like I know the most about. And to me, when I'm watching a play, I want to see really fully fleshed out performances and relationships mm-hmm. and honesty and truthfulness. Like I'd rather watch people with almost nothing on stage, but the relationships are really clear and the performances are really dynamic and truthful. I'll watch that all day versus some big extravaganza, but all the acting seems false and um, uninteresting. So I just approach it from that standpoint. I want to create an environment where I empower the actors and they feel like they have ownership over their role. But I also really, really, really dig into the text. Mm -hmm. And I want to make sure that nothing is ever said where the actors all the actors involved don't know precisely what they mean and why they're saying it and what they're trying to communicate Mm -hmm. with it. And so obviously with Shakespeare, that's really important. And so I really, really dig into that Mm -hmm. and try to get to the real truthfulness of those scenes. I think that's really important. But I do that with contemporary plays too. I really dig into the text and try to figure out, okay, what exactly is being said here? Why is it important? And then kind of just empower the actors. I consider myself kind of like an actor's director, really. Mm -hmm. Okay. And I think that most of the actors I've worked with tend to like it. They like to work with me because they, they feel like they can make smarter, deeper choices. And, and an actor always feels good about that. I think. Yeah. While you were talking, I was thinking anything that's written as a play, every line is designed to move a story forward. Yes. I think you could probably overthink it, but with Shakespeare, especially especially Shakespeare, like after all the kind of the centuries that it's kind of been percolating, it's such specific language. Mm-hmm. Is it harder to do Shakespeare, or do you think it might be a simpler way to direct because he kind of does a lot of the language is so specific Mm. you're totally right about the specificity of the language and i think that's why a lot of both shakespeare and contemporary work kind of falls flat when you see it Mm -hmm. because the actors just aren't being specific enough Mm -hmm. they're letting things fall they're letting details fall away and um they're not utilizing them to the best of you know, to what they could use them for. I think with Shakespeare, honestly, I almost liken it to, I'm not a musician, but like really complicated, like piano concertos or something like that, where yeah. it's, it's, it's obviously a classic. It's, it's incredible music to listen to, mm-hmm. but if you're not, if you're, if you're not, paying attention to the notes and if you haven't been trained or rehearsed or what have you and how to play it right it's gonna sound awful and I think that's what happens with Shakespeare I don't think there's any specific training that you need to Mm -hmm. do Shakespeare but you have to 
pay attention to the language. You have to know exactly what you're saying and why you're saying it. Every single word you have to know. And if you don't, then what you watch when you're in the audience is a bunch of people going blah, 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 mm-hmm. blah, blah. And it doesn't connect. It sounds pretty, but it doesn't connect. It, it is tough because sometimes the performances are basically watching people recite their lines. Yes. And it's all they can do to remember. Mm-hmm. And asking them to kind of dig in deeper and kind of have an an interpretation and a deeper meaning assigned to these lines. Sorry, you're asking too much because it's so dense. It's like, you know, here, eat this pound cake, eat another pound cake. I know the CTC does Shakespeare. And by the way, your Romeo and Juliet, that you, that one still sticks in my mind as one that really hit all the notes. Thank you. Yeah, I appreciate it. Yeah, no, knocked me out of the Dang. Mm-hmm. Really, I mean, I, I still can remember scenes and, and just the whole journey that you took us on and the way you kind of played with, you know, contemporary culture and it fit perfectly. I mean, there was a lot it, like I love watching theater that pushes us all the, the audience to the edge of their intelligence. Mm-hmm. That was something that I really saw a lot of. And so I was really excited about that. I think I'm a bad audience member because I get restless. I should lower my expectations. And you know, what do you think the role of an audience member is? What are fair expectations for an audience? That's a great question. It reminds me of, we've been talking a lot about Shakespeare and it brought up a lot of different thoughts but when you ask about the audience I did a Shakespeare tour for like seven years and it was we went to schools Mm -hmm. um, around New England Mm -hmm. and so you're performing it's a one-hour version of a Shakespeare play but it's all still the same language it's just cut down to an hour yeah and so you're doing this at 8 a.m for maybe sixth graders or maybe like anywhere, you know, could be middle school, could be high school, but you're doing it early in the morning and it's it's Shakespeare. And I, for many years of the tour, I would do what's called the curtain speech. So I would come out at the beginning, like mm-hmm. we did Midsummer Night's Dream and I played Puck in that. Mm-hmm. And so I would come out kind of as Puck, but also kind of as myself mm-hmm. and just talk to the audience and set the expectations because both you're dealing with children who some of them have seen a play before, some of them have never even seen a play before. Yeah. And some of them, a lot of them have probably never seen Shakespeare before, and maybe they're just reading it in school for the first time. And so we're kind of, that was my job, was like to sort of set expectations of what they were supposed to do. And I always started by saying that theater, live performance, what makes it different from a movie or uh, YouTube or something is that it's an active exchange of energy Mm -hmm. between the people on stage and the people in the audience. Mm -hmm. And so as long as you, the audience member, are... So first, it starts with the actors on stage. We have to come out and give you as much energy as we possibly can. Mm -hmm. And then it's up to the audience to be there, be ready, catch it, receive it, and send it back to us. And that what I would describe to them was like, if you see something that's funny, laugh. I mean, if you don't don't think it's funny, don't laugh. But, you know, some people would think it would be like inpro- in, inappropriate to laugh at certain things mm-hmm. in Shakespeare or what have you. And it's like, no, whatever you see that's funny, just go ahead and laugh. If you see something that you don't like, 
you know, that's, you can gasp, you can react, you know, we want to see that we want to see that you're engaged. Mm -hmm. So I think it's good for the audience to stay engaged and to go in expecting that sort of exchange of energy. But that's it. I don't expect anything else of the audience. I think it's the actor's job. It's mm -hmm. the theater's job to make a piece of work that's engaging and that keeps you interested and that keeps you on the edge of your seat and following along and feeling like you're on a journey with the people that are on stage. That's totally the work of the actors and the director. So if you didn't feel engaged, I think then that's the, the theater's fault. <laughs> mm, I think. I'll get my money back then now. So let's plug the, uh, the CTC. What's going on this year? I mean, I know it's a different time. You know, you can't say with certainty what you're going to be able to do because we, we have COVID. Mm -hmm. But what are, how have you adapted and what are some things that you're doing to, to meet these new boundaries, I suppose, that have been imposed? There are, they are artistic boundaries, but what, what are you doing? It has been hard for sure. I think as theater folk, as a theater community, we really thrive on that connection, mm -hmm. both with the audience and with each other. And I think that not having that for us has felt, I think it, we've just really felt the loss just as, as individuals, like with, for our own mental health, like mm -hmm. we've just, it's taken a toll on us not being able to be collaborating together and working together and, and producing things. But I have tried to muster up as much um, energy as we can to produce at least some work online. Mm -hmm. And that will continue going forward, hopefully. And then we're, we're planning to be back in person in the summer because mm -hmm. we have a patio space. So we're going to be outside and but it's going to be a little different. Normally, the summers at the Contemporary Theater are really jam-packed, and we have plays going on inside, and we have plays going on outside, and we have jazz, and we have basically almost every night of the week we have something going on. And I think jumping right into that schedule right away, I mean, it, it burned us out when we were in the grind. Mm -hmm. I think jumping right back into that so quickly is going to be a bit of a shock. I think it'll be a little hard. So I can imagine a bit of a ramp up mm -hmm. as we go along and having sort of a, a handful of sort of marquee events, maybe fully staged plays or some new things, new work. Some I have some of our ensemble members working on a new sort of Shakespeare show that kind of takes like love scenes and love monologues and sonnets and mm -hmm. kind of combines them into a new show. So things like that combined with concerts, mm -hmm. hopefully cabarets, hopefully things that bring the community back together slowly and then building toward hopefully in August, you know, a fully staged scripted yeah. play. And then September we'll do another one. And then October we'll be back inside the theater, hopefully. Well, and I was thinking while you were saying this, do you think that these limitations and your new position, it almost allows you to kind of work into it and work up to it and really make the position your own in some way? Because it's not like, you know, we already have the schedule. You just got to, like, we're just, mm -hmm. it's a turnkey thing. It's like, you're, you're, everything's rebuilding. Like there, there yeah. has been a year of barely anything. Mm -hmm. 
And so now you get to kind of walk and then you get to jog and then you get to run. How does that make a difference for you? Like wh what are some of the things that, it, since you don't have that external pressure, we're just dropping you in and mm -hmm. you're, you better be at speed. Mm -hmm. That has some benefits, but it also has some drawbacks. What are some of the things that you can see in terms of process? You're the artistic director now. So what direction do you want to kind of, you know, now that you have this, all right, we're going to slowly build up some momentum. What are some of the things that you're going to be doing that, where are you starting and where do you want to wind up creatively? Yeah, I think I've kind of had to rethink again and again and again, and I'll probably still go through that process a couple of times. But I think you're right in terms of the contemporary theater company normally has a pretty clear slate of programming. Like the individual plays change, but we have up until this point had like very specific seasons and things that go on. Is it basically a year long calendar? There's mm -hmm. no downtime really. And we go from like the springboard season in winter with Wakefield Idol and Who Done It right mm -hmm. into a big spring show, right into like five big summer shows, right into a big fall show, right into mm -hmm. Christmas, and then again and again. So I think, yeah, dropping in in the middle of that would have been different. But now it's literally like you say, a totally blank slate. I'm dropping into nothing. And so in some ways, that's really great. You know, I get to kind of build it the way I want to see it, but it's also a daunting in that I have to build it back up from nothing. Mm -hmm. And with the idea that we we are a theater that has been in operation for 15 years, but has not really fully been in operation at all for the past year, mm -hmm. And we're coming out of the pandemic with expanded staff, which is really incredible for a theater company to do rather than having staff contract mm -hmm. or expanding. But to me, that's even more responsibility because mm -hmm. I have to pick shows that people are going to see so that we can pay all of us. Yeah. So, you know, it's a lot to balance. And I think it is good to sort of have this rest of this year to kind of feel my way through it mm -hmm. and, you know, have a little bit of the pressure of having the expanded staff and, and trying to like program stuff that will have a good uh, foundation for the company, but, but also just building, building back up again, because it, it has to be a balance. Mm -hmm. It can't just be all, big money-making shows and it can't just be all experimental activist social justice pieces but it has to be a little bit of each I think mm -hmm. I don't think I would be satisfied if it wasn't a little bit of both so I think yeah I'm, I'm trying to take this time to think as ambitiously as I can about what to do this summer and fall but also carefully as well because we want to build back and we want to get the audience to come back and mm -hmm. feel safe coming back and get excited to come back too. Mm -hmm. Sounds good. That's all I got. Mm -hmm. I mean, we can talk more, but I, I, that's, I'm going to stop recording right there. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me, Ron. It's my pleasure. That was Tammy Brown from the Contemporary Theater Company in Wakefield, Rhode Island. And if you want to learn more about that company, you can see in our show notes and the link will go to their website. 
Now, Alex and I get caught up on all the things we've been thinking about and doing this week. Boom. We are now recording. Living the dream. All right. Well, how was your weekend, Alex? It was good. I had a trip coming up this this Sunday to go climbing up in New Hampshire. And I was thinking about some of the, the episodes that we've done recently about generating ideas and kind of finding ways to be creative. And I decided to take a little bit of my own advice. I definitely suffer from that a lot myself. And usually I, when I go on these trips, I'll just bring very basic setup, camera, lens, that's it. No tripod, no mics or anything. And just kind of take pictures of what's going on. This time, I wanted to force myself to do something a little different and do something more video-centric rather than just taking some pictures. Yeah, yeah. And then I was thinking, okay, we're not climbing anything particularly grand. It's still a cool area, but it's not a unclimbed face or anything. And none of us climbing were, were none of us are famous climbers. Mm-hmm. So subject-wise, in the climbing industry is not much to talk about. It's the it's pretty average, I would say. The question became, how can I make this interesting? Yeah. And people who don't ice climb or don't do those kinds of activities, maybe there's a way we can frame it such that they might find it interesting. Mm-hmm. And people who do might say, Oh, you know, I've never thought of it that way kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And I didn't want to make it too complicated because I this might be the last time we go out this season and I don't want to have to finish this project next year. So I packed a camera, a few lenses, my tripod, drone, GoPro, and my simple audio kit. Mm -hmm. So mic on a boom pole with my Zoom and definitely should have packed a little lighter. I was kind of feeling the weight a little bit, but my goal was to focus and kind of capture the sounds associated with ice climbing Mm -hmm. and make like a, a soundscape essentially. I'd seen a, I think actually Ron, you sent it to me. It was a real estate video a few months ago where instead of this, you know, kind of canned corporate electronic music or whatever behind the real estate video, it was just the sounds of what it'd be like living there. Mm-hmm. It was the wind, it was the crickets, the seagulls, the whatever. But I remember seeing that and be like, that's a great idea. And, it, you know, it only it might only work for some houses, you know, wouldn't mm-hmm. work here in Providence, but it, it worked for that. Like, that's I'm going to listen to that. I'm going to remember that. I have remembered that. Mm-hmm. And I was like, how can we do that with, with ice climbing? So I, I went out of my way to you know, record us walking through the snow and hearing the crunch of the snow and the ice under our feet and you know, walking across the trestle bridge and putting the harnesses on, gearing everything up. And then I just got tons of audio of ice axes hitting the wall mm-hmm. and the ice screws going in the rope running through belay devices and through mm-hmm. over the ice and there's this one moment that i didn't capture that's unrelated but this massive sheet of ice just came flying down at one point further from where anyone was but it was 
pretty wild and I kind of wish I was rolling for that. And it was forcing me to think differently. That kind of encapsulates everything we've, we've kind of talked about recently about working within limitations. And mm-hmm. my limitations were I can't work out of the trunk of the car. I, I need to be able to stay light. I need to be able to do it with one person. I can't really shoot video and audio at the same time very easily mm-hmm. in that environment. So I need to be able to shoot something and then record either that same action again mm-hmm. and match it up. Or in one case, you know, they were they were climbing. I got all the video I needed, and then I just took another ice axe and started like hitting it into the ice a few different times just to get uh, fully of that happening, uh, so I can match it up later. Mm-hmm. So it's going to be a bit of a bear to to chop it all up and find all the different pieces. But I've been working on it today, and and I'm pretty happy with it. The important part that I need I'm reminding myself is. If it doesn't turn into anything, if no one else sees it, it doesn't matter. Yeah. Because I got to go out and think differently Mm -hmm. and have a good time rather than try to achieve a goal that's too lofty or whatever. You're right. Even if it doesn't have an immediate purpose, it's like you still get to keep it and you still get to, like, that's valid. So. Yeah. That's cool. So where were you in New Hampshire? We went up to Frankenstein Cliff. All right. Where's which that? Which is in Crawford Notch mm-hmm. in, I want to say, Carroll, New Hampshire. I might have the town wrong. Mm-hmm. But geographically, it is on the, it's west of Mount Washington. So when you're headed out of Conway, it's pretty much north west of Conway as opposed to Washington which is northeast kind of on the edge of the White Mountains and some of the peaks around there Mount Jackson Mount Pierce Tom Field Willie Avalon Willard is pretty popular the AMC Highland Center is right around the corner Arethusa Falls is a pretty common area that people go to a tourist destination we, we thought about going over there to climb but it was a bit of an approach and we were tired so yeah there's this there's a cool metal trestle bridge that you have to walk over to get to a lot of the climbing areas that's still in used use by the cog railway actually i don't know if it's actually the cog railway but it's a train that runs through from conway through the notch uh-huh. in the summer that a lot you know it's a good touristy thing but it's pretty cool to walk over and i got a lot of it for the video so mm-hmm if if I have something worth showing, you'll see it. Well, I think you should just show it. Yeah, I, I probably will. I'm I'm liking where where it's all headed. Matching up the audio is going to be a little tricky, and that's going to yeah. take the most time. Mm-hmm. But I got a lot of a lot of drone stuff that I think is going to help kind of tie it all together. I, my original idea was to kind of start with at, you know, the alarm going off at three in the morning. You know, making coffee, kind of like the whole sequence. Oh, you woke uh, up you know, at three in the morning? 3.30, yeah. Oh, incorrect. Well, I drove an hour and a half to get to Manchester, and then we carpooled to Conway and then Crawford. Hmm. Yeah. No, I mean, I know, like, in the summertime, people will wake up that early to go fishing, 
And I've done that a few times, and it's it's nice because you get out there. I mean, the early morning is cool, but I don't know, man. <laughs> yeah. It's like, I mean, I'm up at five whether I like it or not. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, you know, well, something that I've been getting into, and, you know, my birthday was last week, and my wife got me a gift card for the Wild Birds Unlimited or whatever, bird feeding place. I don't know the name of the... Um... Oh, they're next to Trader Joe's. Yeah. Yeah, I did some commercials for them. And so we did, you know, because I've been feeding the birds here, this outside our bedroom window in the winter. And it's, I had the bird seed and I was like, oh, what the heck? And I'll tell you what, we are getting all sorts of birds, you know, like, counting eight blue jays at a time, squirrels, Carolina wrens, cardinals, some robins. Oh. we got some red-winged blackbirds. Those are, I like those. And, you know, and apparently this business and this kind of pastime since COVID has been going through the ceiling because people are all stuck at home and it's like, well, you know, there's nothing on TV, so I guess I'll just look out the window and I might as well just... Feed the birds. And I totally understand it because mm-hmm. it's, you know, in the morning, like it is a, it's a party. They're just there and they are going to town. They're not shy. And before the sun comes up, you know, you can see like rabbits out there. And so it's this fun, tiny little ecosystem. So anyways, I got a, a big fat bird feeder and we've been doing that. And I know that there's some kind of a project around it, perhaps, like, I think I want to set up the GoPros and, and really get some fun footage of that. You know, a video I did for St. Peter's, you know, because it's like, well, birds, nature. And I'm just kind of thinking about what you're talking about, you know, earlier when you're having some frustration or just like, I don't know what to do with this. I, I just wanted to do it. It's like, well, just show it. You know, this is what I, it, you know, it doesn't have to be this finished perfect thing. It can be like some sketching. This is some sketching that I did. And, and maybe we put something on our website that's just like sketchbook, video blog. It doesn't have to be so spit and polished. Because I think a lot of people, especially with visual stuff, want to see how you think mm-hmm. and be in on the process. Because somehow that's, that's a little bit more open-ended. Your finished work is always great, but... You know, there should be a place for you to just kind of show it all and see it because you never know. Like the stuff that you don't think is very good, you know, maybe in a couple of months you'll look at it and be like, oh, no, that is pretty good. I don't know. What books are you reading? Hold on. Let's 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 do a better transition. So what books are you reading? So I am in the middle of Creative Calling mm-hmm. by Chase Jarvis. Who's he? He is a photographer that I've I've always looked up to. Photographer, creative, a little bit of everything. He is the co-founder of Creative Live. Mm-hmm. So he kind of had another, got big again around that time. But he, I got really into him when he was doing a lot of active lifestyle photography and, you know, doing things with ski brands in aspen and like skate stuff and 
just like really cool active stuff Mm -hmm. and kind of really inspired me to kind of go down the path I'm going now. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I'm only halfway through it, but he talks a lot about basically creativity being just as important as any other vital aspect of your life. Mm -hmm. You know, whether it's, you know, he puts it kind of in the same league as, you know, financial stability Mm -hmm. or just finances in general. Like if you don't take care of this, like if you don't feed your inner creative, it's bad for your health. Mm -hmm. And I've, been wanting the book for a while and then someone got it to me got it for me for the holidays and it's it's really interesting it's a lot of it's nothing new in -hmm. a way it's just worded in a way that's really like well fine i'm just gonna go do something now and it's not you know shaming you or anything but it's it's a good read and i recommend it for anyone what's the part that jumps out for you the most one thing that i liked was when he really broke down who the book was for. When you're first reading the intro and kind of getting into it, I I found myself thinking like, okay, this is for people who, this isn't for me. Mm-hmm. I am a creative professionally. I This is my career. I've been doing it for 10 years. I I know how to be creative. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't need this. And when I got to a part in the book when he really said, he's like, there are four types of people out there. And, you know, let me pause and go get it. Okay. Yeah, read it. So the way he puts it, I'll just read straight from the page. Do you start many projects without actually finishing any? You might be a starter. Do you rework the same piece ad nauseum until you're sick of it? You may be a noodler. Have you been derailed by external forces? This is not the word part that I was looking for. Keep reading oh. it, though. Have you been derailed by external forces? You may be a prioritizer. Do you object to the idea of being an artist? You may be a resistor. Are you an active creator who isn't meeting some internal standard of quality, quantity, external recognition, or compensation? You may be a striver. And then he goes into what each of those really mean yeah i don't think that i mean that that is a part that i liked but i don't think that was what i'm thinking of the thing that kind of ties it in you can be all those things but if you're not delivering if you're not finishing something like that Mm -hmm. that's that's the key oh here you go so within in the introduction before we even even get into the chapters you know he talks about an ambitious pro someone who identifies as a serious professional creator, even if your work isn't your primary source of income and you want to take your work and its public reception to the next level. This could be for a stuck creator where you want to make more work, but you're not getting anywhere, whether that's because of conformity, economic pressure, or fear. You're open to creative reawakening, but you're unsure of how to light the fire. A developing hobbyist, which would be content sticking with a day job that pays for your creative passions, but you want to increase your skills and develop a deeper and more productive creative practice, or you're just might be creative curious. You don't think of yourself as creative, but part of you wants to explore the idea that creativity is fundamental to human well-being. Those two lists together 
really kind of wrap up, and again, I'm only 50 pages into this, really wrap up what this book's all about. It's if you are one of these four kinds of people, you probably fit one of these definitions of a creative. And just kind of defining that, for me, helped. Mm-hmm. Because it gave me a it gave me kind of a label to fit into and help me define where I fall in that range. So where are you? I would say I am kind of halfway between an ambitious pro and a stuck creator. Mm-hmm. I do identify as a serious professional creator. And in some ways it is and isn't my primary source of income and a little bit of both. And I do want to take my work to the next level, but at the same time, I also feel stuck very often. A lot of that is just too much social media and, and then there's not so much fear, maybe a little bit of economic pressure, but for the most part, it's more just kind of getting stuck. And we've talked about that. And in the type of creative, I do think that, I mean, I am notorious for starting projects without finishing them. And some of that is from prioritizing, but I do, I don't reject the idea of being an artist and I do tend to rework the same piece until I'm sick of it. But I don't think I identify with that. I think I'm more of a striver where I'm an active creator who's not meeting some internal standard of quality, quantity, et cetera. Mm -hmm. I think that's more me where I set too high standards for myself and I don't actually finish projects or start them in the first place because of that. So overall, I think this is a, it's a book worth picking up. We're not sponsored by Chase Jarvis at all, so this is just a endorsement. There's a lot of good stuff in here, and I'm really looking forward to finishing it. Yeah. Well, talk more about, uh, I mean, there, there's a really famous book that I read a while back called Art and Fear, and I can't quote it, and maybe we should talk about that later you know, in another episode, because it's it's one of those famous books, and it's, it's a very, once again, a very thin volume. I know for me, when I'm making something and it's important, it's not a comfortable process. I don't like it because I'm usually making something that, well, it's personal to me. Or I'm doing something, I'm taking a chance. I'm I'm someplace that I haven't been before. And that, by its nature, is scary. The way I approach work is really trying to get a technical mastery of something. And then I can kind of lean back on the mechanics and get that validation. Now, as I, you, you can't say that I don't know what I'm doing because I obviously have can make the things, I can make things look or sound good. But when I'm really using all that stuff and just bored. So every tone that I had metered kind of 
was translated on the film and with the proper exposure time, and I could just get a perfect platinum print and perfect defined by like no blown out highlights, no blocked up shadows, this nice full tonal scale, you know, kind of the uh, a, a nod to Ansel Adams. But it, to be fair to Ansel Adams, that's not what he was about. He wasn't about these perfect golf swings. He was about being in control of your materials. I When I man, managed to get control of my materials, it stops because that's rewarded. You look around on Instagram, you look around wherever, and you'll see these really polished, pretty pictures. I mean, on, on YouTube, you know, you'll see these really well-lit, well-recorded videos by these video production teams, and it's kind of like these show showpiece things, but they don't really say or do anything. There's nothing there besides technical expertise or they're really polished and nowadays technology that's the easy part like it's gotten easier and easier to make technically and a mechanically competent image or video and so when I know that I need to kind of shake it up a little bit when I just find myself getting really bored doing something mm-hmm when you're feeling uncomfortable, when you're afraid, that means you've been you're you're in new territory, and that's kind of where the artist needs to live. It's not a working from a place of certainty. It is assumed that you are in control of your materials and you are making choices with those materials. You know that that's assumed. I don't go to a museum and look at paintings on the wall and think, I wonder if they knew how to paint or, or watching a video or something. And it, I mean, it becomes very obvious when someone doesn't know what they're doing. And that old saying, even a blind chicken gets something to eat if it pecks long enough. And we both can look at examples of that. So I, I think something that I struggle with and I really have to kind of remind myself and Seth Godin talks about this too, but I think Chase Jarvis, as you get further into this book, I bet you anything that sooner or later he says, just, it's like that Nike thing, just do it, finish. Oh yeah, that's already been repeated Yeah, a couple times. By finishing and putting it out into the world, it's kind of an act of faith with your audience. Like you're putting that energy out there. You've put energy into something. And if you've, taking the time to make it as good as you possibly can, even though there's going to be that voice in your head, as there is in mine, that says it's no good, no one's very interested, which could be 100% true. It's not like we're fooling ourselves here. It could be not interesting. But I think there's something to be said about just putting it out there and taking a leap of faith that someone might find it useful. And if not, it was a creative exercise for us. Yeah. Like, there's no downside. I mean, as long as it's not, you know, harming anyone and being cruel or negative or anything like that, there's there really is zero harm. It reminds me about the movie Adaptation, which was written by Charlie Kaufman, and it was based on the book The Orchid Thief by Susan Orlean. 
and it stars Nicolas Cage, and he has a twin brother, and he's playing Charlie Kaufman, the guy who wrote the movie, and Charlie Kaufman is just absolutely wrapped up in this whole creative process, and he has a lot of angst, and a lot of just everything has to be perfect, because he is a professional writer. This is what he does. And his twin brother, who always just wanted to get into writing, he's taking like this workshop thing that Charlie Kaufman's kind of like poo-pooing and looking down on, but his brother's just doing it and has enthusiasm. And, and that enthusiasm and that like unawareness that his work is maybe no good or whatever, he's just producing and doing it and having fun he starts getting more success. And so there's this subplot of Charlie Kaufman being really envious of his twin brother who is, you know, having the success and and actually offering some really helpful advice, which he is of course resentful of receiving because he's supposed to be the one who's the professional. And if that's not the truth, I mean, that that's the thing that always bugs me the most is when like my dad gives me advice that, because he doesn't know the industry, you know, I get my nose out of joint, but the reality is, is that he's absolutely right. These books on creativity and art are really important to read and understand, but they always kind of come back to just make it. And that's the hardest part because it's the part that makes us vulnerable. Yeah, I think that's, but that's the root of it, right? If it was easy, then... Everyone would do it. Yeah. No, that that's why it's artwork. And I think that's that's the creative thing. I'm done talking. I think we might have gone a little off topic. Maybe, maybe not. Well, what was the topic? I don't remember. That's why. <laughs> well, we were talking about creativity and, and how just ship it kind of becomes the main message. Oh, I have a recipe. Oh, yeah? Yes. It's for oven-fried chicken, or oven-fried anything, really. It's It's a little cooking trick that I kind of rediscovered. What you do is you take meat, tofu, whatever, anything you want to oven fry, if you don't have a deep fryer, I use mayonnaise and you coat your the thing that you want to oven fry with it and then you roll that in breadcrumbs and it, you know I get the kind that have like the Italian seasoning in there and Romano cheese mm-hmm. and you bake that at like 425 until golden brown tell you what man that's easy nice yeah and if anyone and the reason why I use mayonnaise is because one it has a little bit of a flavor to it but it, it kind of fries the breadcrumbs and and lets the the meat or the vegetables stay moist moist cool. Do you want me to do the outro? Yes. All right. You've been listening to the Oystercast with Alex Woodlier and Ron Cowie. Do you want you say your name? No. Well, here, why don't I say yeah, say with me Alex Woodlier and and then you say your name. All right. You've been listening to the OysterCast with me, Alex Boudelier, and... And Ron Cowie. Please subscribe so you don't miss out. Leave a review on Apple Podcasts. 
and you can go to our website at theoysterfarm.com slash podcast and you can ask any questions you might have about this episode or any leading up to it. Tell your friends. Until next week, be well and have fun. Thank you very much. Take care. Bye-bye. That was good. There you go. All right. Done. Done.